Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm committed, along with my show producers, to bring you news on COVID-19 and its impacts on all of us throughout the state. But we also know it's important to take a break from news focused only on the pandemic. So today where we live, we're rebroadcasting one of our recent conversations. Many of us practice social distancing by staying at home. That means we're spending a lot more time with our spouses. Is working from home impacting your marriage? Today, we're revisiting a show about the history of love and marriage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard the statistic, one in two marriages ends in divorce. But, but is that true? Coming up, we talk about divorce, which researchers say is actually on the decline in the U.S. Does that mean more happy marriages? Not necessarily. Cohabitating and postponing marriage until both people are financially secure has become more common. How does this impact the traditional institution of marriage? Today, where we live, we explore that with Stephanie Kuntz, Director of Research and Public Education for the nonprofit group Council on Contemporary Families. She's also author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage. Now, did you marry for love? That might seem like an odd question in Western society, but not all cultures prioritize love as a reason to marry. You can join us today. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Stephanie Kuntz joins us now by phone. Uh, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's pleasant to talk with you. So let's talk about uh, marriage. Uh, again, when we think about the reasons to marry today, uh, many of us think about love as being uh, part of that uh, equation. But historically, that's not how uh, marriage really evolved. So, so talk us through uh, this relationship and why people married. Okay. Well, it's you know, there's been a lot of debates between how was why was marriage invented? Was it invented to uh, protect women? Was it invented to oppress women? There's arguments on both sides. But the more I research marriage, the more I'm convinced it was invented to get in-laws. It was a way of making connections with other people. Uh, the earliest Anglo-Saxon word for wife meant peace weaver. And it was a way that people could get relatives in other band-level societies. And as societies got more complicated and stratified, um, marriage became the way that you made alliances with families of your own or hopefully even higher status to, to make business deals, economic alliances, peace treaties, military treaties. So for thousands of years, love was uh, considered almost a threat to marriage because, you know, after all, this could lead young people into defying their parents' attempts to arrange a good political and economic alliance with other families. Um, they, the tradition in Western Europe was, uh, yes, love is a good thing if it happens to come after marriage, but it is not a good reason for marriage. And it's, in fact, a very frivolous and scary reason for marriage. And that was true right up until the 18th century. Hmm. I was thinking to, back to some historical power couples. There was Spain's King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, also the story of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, although that didn't end well for her <laughs> um, <laughs> with her uh, true love. Uh, but let's talk also about uh, when you mentioned uh, you know, the uh, getting in-laws, but also the, the economics of, of marriage. 
Yes. Well, for the upper classes, it was the way that you recruited uh, followers, you made uh, business uh, deals, you made treaties and and military alliances, and also it was the way that you established your claim to noble blood. You know, if I'm if I'm related to Charlemagne, I need to marry someone else who is related to Charlemagne, and that will really increase my authority as as descended from kings and and able to to rule. Uh, for the um, the classes that were not quite royalty but had a lot of property, it was in the absence of banks and credit institutions, it was the way you got business loans and made alliances. And uh, so you married into another family in order to increase your fortune. Uh, For a long time, of course, um, when you had a rising middle class and a declining aristocracy, the dowry came into being very important because the rising middle class would give uh, a lot of money to their daughters. daughter, uh, to their daughter's husband, of course, not to the daughter, because uh, women didn't have any rights to, of property once they married. And so they would gain some uh, connection to a noble uh, family, and the noble family would gain some much-needed cash. But even among the lower classes, marriage was an economic proposition, because you couldn't run a farm or a business without two laborers. So you worked for somebody who, you looked for somebody who you knew had a good reputation as a worker, or your same skills. So bakers married other bakers, saddle makers married daughters of saddle makers. Um, so it was a very much a, an important economic institution, too important to be ruled entirely by such a fleeting emotion, people thought, as love. Now, young people have always dreamed and fantasized about being able to marry for love, but there's no accident that most of the great love stories uh, in history, uh, romance novels, ended in tragedy. Mm. So there were practical applications for marriage, but as you just referenced, that love also was a part of people's lives. You saw it in culture, in stories, in poems. And so how did love, uh, so to speak, play out during all this time? Well, it's interesting because there were many societies that saw love as uh, something that occurred outside marriage. In fact, in the Southern French um, tradition of courtly love, which is where we get a lot of our conventions of what it's like to fall in love and you know how you fall in love, uh, they argued that you couldn't have true love in a marriage because marriage was for practical mercenary reasons. The truest form of love, they thought, was adultery. Mm. Now, the Catholic Church did not really like that. The Church was very suspicious about love uh, and marriage. As a matter of fact, um, the earliest Christians felt that um, marriage was a lesser state than staying single and devoting yourself to the Christian Church, because as St. Paul put it, a married person takes, uh, thinks of their spouse and their family, but the single person thinks about God. <laughs> So they felt that the truest form of love was to stay single and uh, serve God, but after that, you should get married. On the other hand, they were very clear, just as the secular authorities were, that when you married, this was an arrangement that was based on authority and power and um, the economic need for families to get together. So um, love was seen as something that could develop after marriage, and was nice if it developed after marriage, but it was gravy. And as late as the 16th and 17th century, both Protestant and Catholic ministers were warning women not to use affectionate nicknames for their husbands, because that would undercut the authority relations and the uh, stability on which marriage and marital inheritances Mm -hmm. to the children were supposed to take place. As a matter of fact, as late as the 
1838, a New Jersey court ruled that the harm of adultery did not lie in the alienation of a woman's affection, but in the introduction of a stranger's blood into the man's inheritance. Mm. Uh, you're hearing Stephanie Kuntz, author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, also director of research and public education for the nonprofit group Council on Contemporary Families. As we talk about marriage uh, as an institution, how it has evolved, you can join our conversation. How do you view marriage today? Is it something that uh, you were looking forward uh, to uh, getting married, or is it something that you'd rather avoid? Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, we actually got a question on uh, Twitter, Stephanie, from Annie, uh, who wants to know more about the heteronormative ideals that marriage upholds. Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, well, marriage, marriage is much more complicated than many people think in terms of what we have had historically. It hasn't all been heteronormative. Uh, you know, people say one man, one woman. Well, actually, that was not the traditional marriage at all. The most preferred marriage through history was one man, several women. But there have also been marriages of uh, one woman to several men. And same-sex marriages have been known in many, many societies throughout history, although they were usually based upon two people playing different gender roles, so that if a Plains Indian man uh, wanted to do the women's, what was traditionally women's work, uh, he could marry another man, and that would be considered. And if a woman, in, for example, in many African societies, wanted to herd cattle, uh, she could become a female husband. It's only recently that we have decided that marriage should be gender neutral, uh, and that you, right up until the 1970s, the courts held that a, um, a woman duty was to provide sexual services. In fact, a, a man couldn't even be charged with raping his own wife because um, they, she, was, uh, she was supposed to do it, and even if it was violent, it couldn't be rape. But she was also supposed to provide comforts in and around the home, and he could sue for the loss of those comforts if he lost her. But she didn't have a right to those comforts. She only had a right to support. She could sue for loss of support if somebody killed her husband, but she couldn't sue for a loss of consortium. But 40 years ago or so, we decided that marriage should be gender neutral and that people should have an individual right to decide what their role should be. And it is something that we're struggling with even now. I have an uh, op-ed in the New York Times that talks about what we know about same-sex marriage and some of the things that same-sex couples can teach different sex couples as we try mm -hmm. to reinvent marriage uh, for a new world. So uh, before we go ahead to break, tell us uh, briefly about um, what you suggest in that column. Well, what we've found is that in the last uh, 30 years, increasingly, marriages have begun to be um, the most, one of the most important predictors of happiness and stability is not specializing the way we were told to do back in the 1950s, but sharing, sharing child care, sharing chores, uh, sharing contributions to the household economy. And it's still very hard for couples to do that. Studies uh, of marriages formed since the early 1990s show that the happiest and most sexually satisfied couples are those that share housework and child care, but only a third, less than a third of the couples studied did that. Same-sex couples uh, don't share everything totally equally, but they're much more likely to share the routine housekeeping and laundry um, equally, and they're much more likely 
to discuss who does what on the basis of individual inclinations, not on stereotypes. And it seems to make them much more satisfied uh, with the division of labor. They, we, we, we say that their reports are that they're much less discontented than heterosexual women tend to be in marriages. Mm. I wanted to uh, take a, a listener phone call now. Kyle's calling from the car. Uh, Kyle, hopefully you're on a hands-free device or pulled over. Go ahead. Yes, hi. I am on a hands-free device, so don't worry. Um, yeah, so um, actually, thank you for taking my call because my, my comment is not necessarily um, 100% having to do with marriage, although I will say that I am in a very happy marriage, and um, uh, I've been married for a few years, and I really enjoy my relationship with my wife. But, um, Stephanie, I uh, when I heard your voice, I recognized it from the Adam Ruins Everything podcast, Um an episode uh, on which you, you would, which you were on that I really appreciated. And I really appreciated how you clarified and uh, articulated the concept of mansplaining, um, <laughs> even though the concept might be, you know, have some roots in, in sexism a little bit. I think you put into words something that I had felt about it for a while, which is that men use mansplaining as a way to impress a woman. And um, that's something that I think people would appreciate uh, reiter- like a, a reiteration of. All right, Kyle, thank you for your call. Stephanie? Well, yes, I, I think the context in which I explained that was that when when we first accepted this idea that marriage should be about love, we were troubled troubled by the fact, you know, what if what if love died? And it led to a really interesting re- redefinition of love and of male and femaleness. It was the idea that love was the attraction of opposites, and men were all these things that women were not. They were the people who went out, out they had ambitions, they had these education, they had talents, they earned money, they were strong, uh, and women were sexually pure. This is a totally new idea about women compared to the past, and that they were homemakers. And so the only way you could get access to the emotions and skills and resources of the other sex was to get married to the other gender. Um, but this led to some real confusion about our in our definitions of love. In women's part, uh, we learned to associate the erotic with this thing that was very dangerous, you know, and we had these romantic fantasies about uh, you have to fall in love with someone who could hurt you, and how do we stop him from hurting us, you know? <laughs> and for men, they learned to believe that love had to do with protecting, providing, and instructing. And so that's why I'm a little more tolerant of mansplaining than some of my feminist friends. You know, I think, well, you know, that's what they were taught to believe. We were taught to believe that it's erotic to be scared by a man. We both have to overcome these sort of things as we move forward to more egalitarian relationships. You're hearing Stephanie Kuntz, author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, also director of research and public education for the nonprofit group Council on Contemporary Families. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to continue our conversation about how marriage has evolved uh, through the generations. And we want to hear from you. How is your marriage story different from your parents or even your grandparents? Do you have a longtime partner and have no interest in getting married? We want to hear why. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And marriage go together like a horse and carriage. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Love and marriage, love and marriage. It's an institute you can't disparage. Ask the local. 
gentry And they will say it's elementary Try, try, try to separate them together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. We had to use that clip from the classic The Princess Bride. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about marriage today and how views on marriage have changed over the last few decades. Now, what does marriage mean to you? If you're in a long-term relationship, do you want to get married? Why or why not? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest uh, by phone is Stephanie Kuntz, author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, also director of research and public education for the nonprofit group Council. Council on Contemporary Families. Uh, Stephanie, I believe you said uh, earlier that uh, love started to um, uh, come into marriage uh, starting in the 18th century. But when we look at uh, marriage today, you know, how, how has it changed uh, versus when our grandparents or great-grandparents uh, were married? Well, yes. As I said earlier, one of the ways that when first people began to think in terms of marrying for love. Conservatives, defenders of the real traditional marriage, were absolutely horrified. They said, how will we get our people to marry the right people, and how will we get them to stay married? You know, what if they demand the right to divorce if love dies? As, in fact, they were quite right. And the original way that they tried to handle it was by this definition of love as opposites. And they they were still a tremendous hierarchy, but it was supposed to be a protective hierarchy rather than the outright authoritarian hierarchy. But it was still, right up until the 1970s, um, based upon totally different specialized division of labor among men and women, and men were supposed to act in ways that were manly and not available to women, and vice versa. Today, we have changed our ideals on that, and marriage is becoming something that we want to be egalitarian, sharing as one of the best predictors of a happy marriage. And in addition, we have so many alternatives to marriage that nowadays we've we've raised our standards. You know, a lot of people say, well, marriage is, is dying, marriage People don't care about marriage anymore. Actually, we care much more about marriage as a relationship than people in the past did. We're less attached to it as an institution that everybody has to enter, but we actually have higher expectations of marriage as a relationship. There's less domestic violence. There's more emphasis on intimacy and comradeship and communication and sharing. But it takes a lot of work to do that. You can't just get married and say, okay, now I know what I'm doing for the rest of our lives. You kind of have to evolve together. So we're finding that the best predictors of a successful marriage today are uh, delaying marriage. Every year a woman delays marriage um, up until about 35 to 39. Uh, it goes, her risk of divorce goes down. It ticks up a little bit between 35 
34, 39, and then it continues to go down again. Getting a good education, I think it's not so much the education uh, alone, although I think getting an education means that you have learned to defer gratification, you can negotiate, but it's also economic stability is important because another big motive for marriage in the 50s and 60s was that a woman couldn't support herself outside marriage. Mm. Now she can. So the bar for marriage has been rising. We've been saying, oh, well, I don't have to get married. I'm not going to get married just because I need another income. Another income would be nice, and it is necessary, but I also want all these other things to go along with it. So marriage takes more work now over a longer period of time and more negotiating skills than it used to in the past. Uh, one of the consequences when people think of these traditional ideas of marriage, uh, women, again, uh, delaying marriage, uh, wanting to build up their career, uh, maybe not getting married until their mid to late 30s even, but that can impact another ideal that people thought when you get married, then you have children. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, people still have children. Often they have children uh, before they get married. But most college-educated people do get married before they have children or they live together for a long time and when they get pregnant, they get married. But again, one of the things we're seeing is that because marriage has become in some ways such a high payoff but also a high risk um, uh, institution for people that, okay, if you enter it and it goes well and you've got a collaborative uh, partner who can help you earn money and who will not misspend the resources or uh, misuse you or the kids, it's great. But if it does, then you're likely to divorce and a divorce can leave you and your kids worse off than if you'd never married in the first place. And so we're seeing a very disturbing class, um, but understandable class gap in access to marriage. And that is educated uh, people are more economically stable. They're more likely to get married and stay married. The divorce rates uh, of college-educated people have been falling steadily since 1979 to 81, uh, which was a high point of divorce in America. But people without that kind of stability and under the chronic uh, stress of increasing economically and especially volatility of income, you know, unpredictability, that's one of the best predictors of conflict between individuals, much higher predictor of conflict in a relationship than your experiences such as a child and whether your parents divorced. So those kinds of relationships are becoming less stable and sometimes people will cohabit in a hurry to save money, have a baby, and then realize that it's not working out. And that's very unfortunate, I think. But it's not something you're going to end by just preaching at them that this is bad. We have to give people more supports that make it possible to have decent secure lives in and out of marriage. We're talking about uh, how marriage has evolved uh, with my guest, uh, Stephanie Kuntz, again, author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage. You can join our conversation. You know, what's your reaction to uh, what Stephanie is sharing with us? The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. Uh, Stephanie, I liked how you framed that earlier about how marriage today is is really about raising our standards uh, because you see more people cohabitating and putting off marriage. That's not something just to be done, and that shows that you're successful. We hear often about the millennial generation. So when we think about the average age of people getting married today, is it the later 20s? 
Oh, yeah. The average age for women has reached 28 and for men has reached 30. And what's even more interesting and significant is that the spread in the age of marriage at which people marry for the first time is higher than it's ever been. Some people marrying for the first time in their 40s, their 50s, even their 60s. Uh, demographers think that about 85% of Americans will marry uh, eventually at some point in their life. But most of us will spend much longer period of our adult lives outside marriage, either before marriage or in the case of divorce or the death of a uh, spouse after marriage than ever before in history. So in a sense, everybody has to learn to, to live as singles. And it turns out that living uh, as singles successfully is a good predictor of, ling- of living well as a married couple, because having friendship networks beyond the marriage, uh, which is not something that was encouraged back in the 1950s, is actually a huge support to marital intimacy and satisfaction. Again, uh, you can join us, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Stephanie, I don't think we talked yet about um, how birth control uh, plays a part in uh, women's abilities, again, to put off marriage, to put off having uh, children, to feel like they have control of their lives. Well, it's absolutely vital. You know, I mean, I interviewed uh, for one of the books I, I wrote called A Strange Stirring. I interviewed a lot of women who married in the 1940s, 50s, and the early 60s. And over and over again, they said, well, they married the first guy they slept with because they were afraid they would get pregnant. Uh, and the result was often that it really was not the best marriage. Uh, one of them said to me, you know, I went and I told my granddaughter the other day, you don't have to marry someone just because you sleep with him. <laughs> and she's, what what's happened is that now with birth control, it means that people can delay marriage. They can decide. They can have a long-term relationship. Uh, some people are shocked by this, but I think it's a good thing that they can have sex without feeling that they have to get married because they might get pregnant. And so it means that they can get their education. It also means that they can time their children, and it means that they are less likely to have an unwanted child, which is a huge predictor of bad parenting. And still in America, unfortunately, we have a very high percentage of unwanted uh, kids because of the lack of birth control uh, in, in, that is provided for people. And you, as you know, there are many attacks on birth control and women's access and ability to control their own bodies. And that's not good for the kids themselves, because when kids are unplanned and especially unwanted, uh, the parenting is not very good. Uh, when we're talking about marriage, uh, we've got to talk about you know a major milestone uh, when we look at how uh, marriage has evolved, and that was in, in 2015, the Supreme Court ruling which legalized same-sex marriage. Can you talk more about that ruling and how uh, it changed uh, people's ideals of what marriage is? Well, it's funny. In some ways, I think that that ruling came out of the fact that heterosexuals had already changed marriage so much. You know, for thousands of years, marriage wasn't about love. And then in the 19th century, we made it about love, but we desexualized it with this idea that uh, women didn't like sex, and that wasn't the most important thing in marriage. And then in the early 1920s, we had the first real sexual revolution that said, no, marriage should be about sexual satisfaction for both men and women. And then we said, well, you don't have to have children as we introduced birth control in order. So, so even if you don't want children or can't have children, you can marry. And then in the 60s, we decided that marriage was a right. We said, you can't forbid black and white people to marry. We can't forbid 
prisoners to marry just because we disapprove of people. And then in the 70s, we began to rearrange the marriage laws that said, just because you're a man and a woman in a marriage doesn't mean that one of you has to do one thing and the other has to do another thing. Marriage should be a gender-neutral institution where you can make a decision about what you do and, and how you relate on basis on your individual desires. Well, by that time, it seems to me we'd absolutely made it clear that same-sex marriage was inevitable. Uh, but what same-sex marriage has done, I think, is offer people new models for how to organize marriages that are not based on strict gender roles. And I think many of those models are really positive. The, what I said earlier, the fact that same-sex couples tend to discuss much more intensively who wants to do what in the marriage and how to divide this in ways that don't just assume that, oh, men do this and women do that. You know, there there is the, the criticism from uh, people who uh, view traditional marriage as an ideal that uh, should be embraced more, that uh, with uh, people putting off marriage, with cohabitating, they see that eventually marriage will not be something that um, is common. Do you disagree with that, considering that, again, people are still getting married, but they are taking uh, time to think about, again, like you said, raising their standards uh, before ending in a long-term relationship? Well, I think the key is that marriage has been <laughs> deinstitutionalized. Uh, a colleague of mine, Nancy Cott, makes the analogy with the Church of England. When the, the American Revolution disestablished the Church of England, it said you no longer have to join that church in order to vote, in order to uh, have social respectability, and, you know, in order to, have an, to run a business. Um, when that happened, um, the Church of England did not disappear. Um, but other sects came into being, and the, church, the old church had to recruit members on an entirely new basis than when it was the only game in town. And I think that that's the same way we should look at marriage. Marriage is no longer the only game in town. People can survive outside of it uh, as singles, as cohabiting partners. Um, but marriage itself still seems to be what people believe to be the highest commitment that they can imagine. They no longer believe they have to enter it even before they're absolutely sure that they're ready to make that commitment and that their partner is, has proven uh, himself or herself ready to meet that commitment. So marriage is not going to be as universal as it was, but I certainly don't think it's going to die out. Uh, earlier uh, in the show, I mentioned that statistic that 50% of marriages will end in divorce and, um, you know, questioning whether that is really accurate. So what do we know today, Stephanie, about, um, you know, that, that statistic as well as, you know, what factors uh, lead people uh, to divorce? Uh, we're hearing that the, the rates have declined in the U.S. Uh, yes, rates have declined. They rose very quickly um, when... With a couple of reasons. First of all, as divorce laws were liberalized, many bad marriages uh, ended up getting uh, ended, and that was good. Uh, wives' suicide rates uh, fell, domestic violence rates fell because people could get out of bad marriages. But also, as women entered the workforce, there were new conflicts as women's minds about what marriage should be changed faster than men's. Who was sort of like, well, it's good you're earning income, but I still expect you to do the dishes. Uh, and that led, led to divorce as well. 
uh, now we've begun to stabilize on that. But still, these economic and educational differences are very clear. And that average, I think the average is exaggerated anyway, but it takes into account, you know, teenage marriages that have a very high chance of divorce. And it doesn't take account the huge class gap. For example, a college-educated woman has an 80% chance of uh, her marriage lasting for 40 years. But someone who has dropped out of high school has only like a 30 or 40 percent chance. So these averages uh, disguise huge variations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned with uh, divorce uh, proceedings uh, changing um, that that has impacted, um, again, like uh, people who are feeling uh, either depressed or domestic violence uh, situations. So can you just briefly tell us um, what states did uh, to uh, change divorce laws that uh, made it more equal so that uh, there wasn't, it wasn't about one person's fault or another's? Well, yes. We, um, the first no-fault uh, began in uh, 1970, was implemented in California, and it spread very gradually uh, throughout the country. And what No Fault says is that um, there are different laws in different states that have, uh, but essentially it says you do not any longer have to prove fault in order to get out of a marriage. And you do not want to romanticize fault-based divorces because they, the the legal standard was that you had to, if you wanted a fault-based divorce, you had to come to the court quote, with clean hands. In other words, if you'd done anything bad, you still couldn't. So if you'd both been awful to each other, you couldn't get a divorce, which is ridiculous. But we adopted, as states adopted those things, we have the opportunity to see what happened in each state in the next five years. And what we found is that the divorce rates uh, did rise in the next five years, but wives' suicide rates fell by an average of 13%. Domestic violence fell by about 30%. And the rate of husbands being killed by their wives also fell. And then divorce rates leveled off. Uh, so no, the no-fault divorce has, you know, of course, every, there are always trade-offs. No-fault divorce hurts the party who wants the marriage to last just as it is. Um, it benefits the party who wants the marriage to change, either by allowing them to walk away or by giving them more negotiating power. And we found that the negotiating power has saved many marriages. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephanie Coons, it's been a pleasure. Author of Marriage, a History, How Love Conquered Marriage, and Director of Research and Public Education for the nonprofit group Council on Contemporary Families. Uh, we appreciated your time today, Stephanie. Thanks again. My pleasure. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the right to get a divorce. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. See you driving around town with the girl I love and I lie, forget you. I'm just a change in my pocket wasn't enough. I'm like, forget you and forget her, too, said This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We've been talking about marriage today, but now a family law expert joins us to talk about the options people have to dissolve a marriage. Megan Freed joins us via Zoom, managing attorney of Freed Marcroft, a Connecticut divorce and family law firm. Megan, thanks for coming on today. 
Thanks for having me, Lucy. So we heard uh, Stephanie talk about a no-fault divorce laws, uh, divorce proceedings getting a lot of tension in pop culture because of this Netflix movie, A Marriage Story. For For people who haven't seen it, a story of a couple that thought they could divorce on good terms, but instead they end up in the courts and it's pure hell. Uh, Laura Dern actually got an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. People don't accept mothers who drink too much wine and yell at their child and call him an I get it. I do it too. We can accept an imperfect dad. Let's face it, the idea of a good father was only invented like 30 years ago. Before that, fathers were expected to be silent and absent and unreliable and selfish. And we can all say we want them to be different. But on some basic level, we accept them. We love them for their fallibilities, but people absolutely don't accept those same failings in mothers. We don't accept it structurally, and we don't accept it spiritually, because the basis of our Judeo-Christian whatever is Mary, mother of Jesus, and she's perfect. She's a virgin who gives birth. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your perspective um, on uh, divorce and how people see it uh, today uh, versus maybe a couple decades ago. Yeah. um, Well, it's interesting. Whenever there's a movie like this, especially one like Marriage Story, where there's, you know, maybe not all of the Academy Awards that it was nominated for, but certainly a significant movie, things change. If we think back to Kramer versus Kramer, that um, I actually had a friend on Facebook talk about how watching Kramer versus Kramer as a child with parents who remained married uh, scared him for (laughs) until the present day in his 40s. So these movies actually can have a lasting impact on how people view divorce. And with something like Kramer versus Kramer, which um, for those of you that have seen the movie and recall it, that was a high conflict litigation also, that is seared into our brains. And so some of the modernizations of divorce that have happened in how we practice law, in how the courts conceive of divorce, haven't caught up with pop culture. In some ways, pop culture lags reality, Mm. which is really interesting. And now with Marriage Story, there's a bit of a a reset on that because although it is a very high conflict divorce, it is more reflective Mm -hmm. of the current status. I'll say this now because it's, it's always the case that, you know, Hollywood tends to place um, divorces tends to set them on um, in California or in New York. And so for for our clients at Freed Marcroft here in Connecticut, one of the things that's confusing is that the divorce laws in Connecticut and the divorce laws in California are actually significantly different. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's sort of in the ether that shapes people's view on marriage that isn't accurate and can cause, frankly, additional stress. Mm. Can you briefly tell us, uh, in terms of Connecticut law, what do you mean by it being very different from California? So the main thing that's really different between Connecticut and California that was bubbling up in the back of Marriage Story, obviously that's primarily a story about the couple's relationship and the battle between the lawyers and um, how everyone gets sucked into that. But there's also a lot of talk about money. Mm-hmm. And Connecticut is not, um, it doesn't have the same sort of structure for property division as California does. California is a community property state. So if those of you that saw the movie, Um, recall, they started to talk about, we should get half of this grant because it happened during the marriage. So while we are 
willing to be flexible. On support, we contend that half of Charlie's grant money be split between the parties. <laughs> I don't see how you can claim that she gets half a grand dedicated to his genius. He became a genius during the course of the marriage. Oh, come on, Nora. Charlie himself, upon hearing that he received the prize, told Nicole that it belonged to her, too. That's what people say when they win awards. Mm, no, he was implying what was true. His genius was an intangible asset built during the marriage. That's a kind of bright line structure where if something was acquired during the marriage, it's split 50-50 or, um, or some other things. But it's a, it's, like a, it's a clearer test. Connecticut doesn't work like that at all. We're an equitable division state. And what that means, um, equitable distribution, pardon me. And what that means is that, that Connecticut courts have jurisdiction over all property that both spouses have, whether, whether it was acquired during the marriage, whether it was acquired before, separately, doesn't matter how it was held. And they can divide that how they decide is an equitable division of the property, which doesn't mean 50-50. 50-50 mm. is an equitable. So there's a lot more room for spouses, particularly if they're able to work together um, either on their own or through a mediator or through their lawyers to come up with creative solutions that essentially expand the pie rather than follow these bright line yeah. prescribed rules. So let's talk about that. You just mentioned uh, when people think about whether it's time to uh, get a divorce, uh, they think about these uh, these court battles, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mediation can be something that, um, are, is it something that people are choosing more often? And how does that, what are the outcomes, uh, Megan? Yeah, so in Connecticut, there's there's the traditional route of litigation. That's sort of the default. So unless both spouses agree to do a form of alternative dispute resolution. That's what we um, shorthand use the term ADR for, which are mediation and collaborative law. Unless both people opt into those alternatives, they wind up in litigation. One of the things I always like, like to make sure to mention, again, kind of segueing in with the pop culture um, impression of high conflict divorces, which clearly make better dramas, right? But um, not in your life <laughs> on the screen. Um, that all litigation isn't high conflict. There are components of alternative dispute resolutions woven through most litigations also. So you might have um, lawyers negotiating with each other to receive uh, to reach a settlement. Um, spouses having kitchen table conversations to reach agreements, and our Connecticut judicial system creates some opportunities for people to um, meet and try and resolve things with the help of the court. So not every litigation is movie-worthy, right? But in addition to that, we have collaborative law in Connecticut, which is... Um, is a, is a minority of cases, but a growing minority of cases. It's less familiar to folks than mediation is. But that's where um, both spouses have their own lawyer that represents them. And also there's a financial neutral and a mental health professional neutral who help guide the process. So rather than I go out and hire my experts that say all this money should be mine and um, that, that, that I should have full custody of the kids, you have people with knowledge sitting in the middle, keeping the kids in the center, focusing on um, 
focusing neutrally on what's best for all parts of the family. So that's, and, and there's no core pledge in a, in a collaborative so that you can't then turn that against the other spouse and run to court. And then a mediation was actually fairly, fairly well depicted in marriage story. That was, well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a successful mediation because one of the parties um, walked out in this case, Nicole, the wife, but, but that's kind of what it looks like, right? There's a neutral that sits in the middle. Um, most common in Connecticut, that's an attorney serving as mediator. Mm-hmm. So that lawyer doesn't represent either party, but she can give legal information as she guides the parties towards a resolution. One thing about Marriage Story, for those of you that saw it, um, there's still conflict between two people in a mediation or a collaborative. So it, it, it was not unusual to see someone get upset and have to like take a breather. Normally we're able to hold the mediation together and get things back on track and not yeah. have it go the way the, the uh, movie did. Uh, Megan, we just have a few minutes left, but I did want to ask you when we think about um, how marriage has evolved, but also how divorce law has evolved, you know, there's the, the perception in the past was that uh, children always ended up with their mothers. That's not something that is em- embraced today. There is a, a feeling that whatever is best for the child, which means it possibly visitation with both family both parents? Yeah, we actually are, are, are even changing our terminology. So rather than talk about custody and visitation, more and more you're seeing um, lawyers and courts talk about parenting plans. So it's really where is a child going to be with which parent when, rather than one parent being the p- primary custodian and the other parent having visitation, the theory being like, you don't visit with your own child, right? Mm -hmm. You parent your own child. Mm -hmm. So it's parenting time. So yeah. And I think that one of the things about marriage story that may have been a little bit confusing too, is is part of the structure of, of what was happening in that couple's conflict was that mom wanted to be in California and dad wanted to be in New York. And so in a situation like that, it's difficult to share custody like you would if um, someone was in Glastonbury and someone was in Hartford, right? It's a more challenging, um, virtually equal setup. So I think that you want to remember that the standard that the courts use is what's in the best interests of the child. And we're always trying to drive towards what that is. Mm. That got lost in marriage story because really it was a drama about the spouses more than the the child. Uh, Just uh, quickly, and I'm sorry that we're ending uh, this uh, segment on this question, but, you know, a lot of attention on uh, what happened to Jennifer Farber-Dulos and her husband, um, a very ugly divorce uh, and with that uh, uh, led to the death of both of them. Uh, You know, when you think as a divorce attorney about um, how people may use the court system to harass and abuse partners, you know, what are some steps that Connecticut can take uh, to alleviate that kind of situation um, from happening between couples? Yeah, I I think that it's really important to note that very few divorces wind up in the papers, right? So much was happening to that family that, um, that it was very newsworthy. The divorce was newsworthy. And that that newsworthy nature was a tool used by counsel in the divorce case, right? So 
most people are not going to be subjected to having the ins and outs of their divorce um, covered by local media or in this case, national media. So I do think that that's something to bear in mind. Also, most divorces are not high conflict like that. Most divorces are some some components of them, at least, are based upon agreement between the two parties involved. So I don't want, you know, everyone to be really scared by what happened in, um, in that case, in the idea that it could happen to them. That said, there are litigation tactics that will tend to delay a case or increase conflict in a case, Mm -hmm. like filing a lot of motions. Mm -hmm. Every time a motion is filed, if you don't respond to it, um, the uh, most types of them are going to just get entered. So, so there is an there is an issue that if you have a party who is inclined to behave like that, mm-hmm. with counsel that um, finds that to be a good and ethical strategy, that you can have a very arduous, yeah. very protracted court battle. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Megan Freed, we'd love to have you back to talk more about uh, divorce law and, and family oh, law. Come back. <laughs> managing, yeah. a, a managing attorney at Freed Marcroft, a Connecticut divorce and family law firm. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer today is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.